Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Jay Bradford DeLong, a well-known economic historian and professor at the University of California, Berkeley, who has served as a senior official in the U.S. Treasury Department and is responsible for the widely read economics blog, Brad DeLong's Grasping Reality. He's also the author of the fascinating new book, Slouching Towards Utopia, an economic history of the 20th century, which challenges conventional narratives about the economic story of the past 150 years or so. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book, including what he calls the, quote, long 20th century, the factors that produced significant economic growth over this period, and why it ultimately failed to produce the utopia that some had anticipated. Brad, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great, great pleasure. Um, and I don't know whether I'd even congratulate it writing it. Certainly, I'm blessed, right, that when you write a book, you discover how many friends you have and also how many friends the book has. And it is you know, more than you would have imagined possible in terms of people who take their arguments seriously and who write in earnestly and who ask their friends um, to read about it as well. Well, as listeners will learn, I think that's for good reason. There's a, a, a ton of insight in the book, and I, I want to get into it right away. You argue that what you call the, quote, long 20th century, which ran from roughly 1870 to 2010, was fundamentally marked by economics. It was, in your words, an era in which the, quote, economy was the dominant arena of events and changes, and economic changes were the driving force behind other changes in a way never seen before. Let's start with a two-part question. First, why have you chosen 1870 and 2010 as the beginning and end points of your story? And second, why do you think it's important to ultimately understand this era of great wars, grand ideologies, and massive social change through the lens of economics? Well, um, let me answer just half of your first question, right? Um, and the question of why 1870? And let me start with the tentpole of that being, say, something written by British moral philosopher and economist John Stuart Mill and his Principles of Political Economy. You know, first edition written in the 1840s, last edition written in the 1870s. And even in the 1870s, Mill is saying that all of the mechanical inventions up to this day, um, and he admits that they were mighty and important, um, have not you know, lightened the day's toil of a single human being. That is, they have rather allowed a great many more people to live on the earth, but to live the same life of drudgery and imprisonment. And he goes on to say that, yes, well, our rich in 1870 are vastly richer 
than the richer of 1770 or the year 1000 or say minus 3000 or so back when the principal thing you got to do if you were rich was eat meat and drink beer um, in large quantities. But that up until 1870, at least since we discovered agriculture and moved into the farms and the cities, towns and the cities in minus 6,000 or so, um, human life for most people had been the same old, same old. You know, by the sweat of your brow, you shall earn your bread. And then the thugs with spears come along and they take a good chunk of it for themselves. And in the meantime, one third of families wind up without surviving sons, which causes great social anxiety. If you're, say, a middle-aged woman in an agrarian society without a surviving son, who is going to advocate you? Um, and so technology, technological advances, yes, but offset by rising populations, which means smaller farm sizes and worse raw materials from which you can make your crafts. And that not stagnant, not static, but rather long history in which people are always poor, um, or the bulk of people are always poor. And governance and politics are mostly about, you know, how can elite and elite manage to grab enough for itself and elbow competing elites out of the way? That really is history up until 1870, and it is only after 1870 that the possibility of history being something different you know, comes into view. You attribute the rise of sustained economic growth and progress to three key developments, globalization, the industrial research laboratory, and the modern corporation. You write that, quote, they unlocked the gate that had previously kept humanity in dire poverty. What's their significance and how do they effectively interact together? to set off the story of growth at the heart of your book? Well, if I had to write it over again, I would not say they were the they were the keys to unlock the lock. I would say that there were rather were 30 locks. You know, um, and you had to unlock you know, each one as time passed and as kind of civilization advanced and people got better at figuring out how to cooperatively work together and discover things. You know, but that and that, you know, unlocking the first 27 of the locks or so, you know, it made a big difference, Some right? That by, what is it, the year minus 1,000, there are maybe 50 million people on the earth. By 1,500, there are 500 million. You know, and so your average farm size is only one-tenth as large in 1,500, notionally, as it was in minus 1,000. And yet people are still eating in 1,500. You know, better technology matters a lot. Up until 1870, better technology did not matter enough. You know, technology was improving, but only slowly. With, however, around 1870, with the coming of the Industrial Research Lab, which means you can take science and then you can rationalize and routinize you know, the discovery and development of ways to apply science to be more productive and cooperative. And then the development of the modern corporation, so you can rationalize and routinize um, developing and deploying useful, ingenious technological ideas. And in the context of the global market economy, in which the incentives are absolutely enormous to do this, and the incentives are also enormous to take a look around and copy what's being made elsewhere. And so you deploy and diffuse modern technologies. Um, you know, 
basically, we've had as much proportional technological progress since 1870 as we had between minus 6,000 and the year 1870. That, you know, back in the old days, you could expect humans on average to get 5% better at producing things over the course of a century. You know, and we get that amount of technological change every two years. You know, every generation humanity since 1870, humanity has gotten twice as good at working together cooperatively to organize ourselves and to manipulate nature. Um, and that means that each generation really is a different society with much greater possibilities for making us all wealthier. The notion of American exceptionalism looms large in your history. What's its role in your understanding of this unique era of economic growth and, and technological progress? What explains the oversized place of the United States in catalyzing these economic developments? And perhaps more importantly, what's happened? Why does it feel like America has come to flinch in the face of slowing productivity, stagnant living standards, and sluggish economic growth? Well, of course, it was luck. Right? That is the luck of having a continent scale market just at the time when you have, you know, um, and the luck of having, you know, the extraordinary, extraordinary river system, you know, that North America has. You know, the St. Lawrence and the Great Lakes, you know, the cutoff from the St. Lawrence to the Hudson, that is the Erie Canal, that lets you avoid unpleasantnesses like the fact that the Niagara Falls are rather hostile to boats. Um, plus the fact that Canada is far enough north, north that the St. Lawrence mouth of St. Lawrence is icebound for a depressingly large chunk um, of the year. Um, the Mississippi, Missouri, Ohio, you know, the Colorado, the Columbia, the Sacramento, the, lots of wonderful rivers. And on top of these wonderful rivers, we managed to have built railroads by 1870, um, which means that if it's worth spending money to figure out how engineers can be deployed to invent it, the benefits from deploying it in the continent of North America, you know, they're two, three, four times as large as the benefits to deploying it in a Europe, especially a Europe that is um, very interested in friendshoring, right? That the Germans in 1870 are as uninterested in having key components of their economy made in France as the French are interested in having key components of their economy made in Germany in a way that absolutely dwarfs, you know, China and the U.S.'s worries about, you know, with strategic interdependence and possible weaponization today. Um, so after 1870, yeah, you know, um, then the leading industrial countries of the, the United States, especially its Northeast and to some degree its Midwest, Britain and Germany, um, Germany has the educational system to create engineers in mass, um, but doesn't really have the capital or the continent-sized market. Um, Britain, um, Britain really doesn't have the educational system, right? That too many smart Britons who ought to have begun becoming engineers are instead learning to translate Greek verse and to write, um, to write ballad poems, which the Romans would have written if the Romans had been Scots, right? That only in Scotland do you have a real engineering education tradition, you know, and, and, and indeed it shows, um, it shows. 
It shows so much that when Gene Roddenberry needed a chief engineer for his starship in the 24th century, uh, what does he do? He picks up on the trope um, and the stereotype of the Scottish engineer. Um, the United States had the educational system, had the cotton-wide cotton scale, um, had you know, the background in terms, had um, the enormous natural resources of the North American continent spread over a very small population. And so the idea that you would need to depress labor productivity in order to save on resources, you know, just wasn't a thing. And you know, that rocket was lit in 1870, um, reinforced by the fact that America welcomed immigrants from Europe, at least in a way that no one else did. Um, and that pulled forward the United States so that it was close to being half a generation ahead of the richest and most sophisticated other industrial countries for most of the 20th century. It was the place where the big action was happening, was, as Leon Trotsky liked to say, the furnace where the future was being forged. We've been speaking mostly so far, Brad, about the beginnings of the long 20th century that you outline in the book. I want to talk a bit about the developments that, in your view, came together in the early 2000s to bring an end to the long 20th century. What are they, in your view? Well, um, first, it may actually not have ended. You know, that is Larry Summers, for example, thinks that my book ends with a huge mistake, you know, that I should simply say the same story continues, right? That humanity keeps getting twice as wealthy every generation as it was a generation, the generation before. Um, but this process of Schumpeterian creative destruction creates enormous, you know, social, political, psychological, cultural stresses. Um, that if you want to think, if you, if I wanted to become an orthodox Marxist for a second, I would say the forces of production are being transformed every generation, which means the relations of production and then all of society built on top of it has to be transformed too. That with this swapping out of our hardware every generation, we need to frantically rewrite the econo sociological, political, cultural running code of our society every generation. So the thing doesn't crash. And we have to keep doing this generation after generation, and we're not doing too well, and we're doing it yet again right now as we move from the value chain economy into the infobiotech economy worldwide. Um, but, you know, books are successful only if they tell a single story that people can grasp. And a story has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, and in the 20 years after 2000, you know, a bunch of things happen. Um, Adam Tooze might call them a long-running polycrisis, right? That first in 2001, forms of religious terrorism and war that he, we thought people really had outgrown after the Thirty Years' War of 1648 um, suddenly appear to be back on the menu. Um, come 2003, you know, the United States government um, ceases to at least pretend to be, you know, a benevolent cooperative hegemon in the world, interested in getting along with everyone and says, we're going to start acting more like a great power in our own interest. Um, 2007, my friend John Fernald, who knows more about this than anyone else, says um, that the 
engine of productivity growth, which has led to a doubling of our human technological competence every 30 years, you know, steps down to only half that pace. And my friend Block would say that the large consequence, that is largely the consequence of the fact that the neoliberal turn made the large corporations that used to run the industrial research labs focus much more on their bottom line and much less on blue sky research and the failure of governments also under neoliberal pressure in order to make every penny count, you know, to pick up the slack. 2008 demonstrates that we have forgotten everything we knew about how to keep financial crises from you know, disrupting the economy. 2010 demonstrates that we have forgotten everything we might have learned about the importance of rapidly returning economies to full employment you know, after a big depression. And then we see come 2016, we see the rise of anti-democratic movements that Frank Fukuyama had assured us had died in the World War II era with the victory of democracy. Um, and then 2021 sees the return of major power war you know, to the European continent. That people thinking that the way to make their country great is not through soft power, um, but through hard power. That you want to convince the Ukrainians that they actually are not a separate nation, but instead a um, merely an ethnicity of the great Russia, of great Russia. You know, well, the soft power way would have been to send, you know, um, ballet troops, you know, would be to fund a bunch of ballet troops to give performances in Kiev and Odessa. Um, have poets reading the works of Pushkin in town squares in Kharkov um, and, you know, um, the Donbass, you know, that have people playing the music of Tchaikovsky and Lviv and so forth. But not to send killer robots so to stalk the skies looking for people to kill and things to blow up. You know, um, and all of these things together mean that, you know, come... 2020, we're no longer in a situation in which the problem is using our rapidly increasing wealth, that our wealth is doubling every generation. We simply have to figure out how to equitably distribute it and also properly utilize it. Um, instead, we seem to have bigger problems with running our society. You know, plus global warming is now a civilization shaking threat. Um, and there is always the fear that nuclear proliferation will attain critical mass. Right? That, you know, um, that George W. Bush said there were three countries that were an axis of evil. And the one that the United States steps most gingerly around is North Korea, the one with nuclear weapons. The one that did not have any nuclear weapons program, Iraq, you know, we overthrew the regime in two weeks in two. 2003. Um, and Iran is stepping gingerly and very much wondering how rapidly it should attempt to advance its nuclear program, or if it shouldn't, what it can possibly get in return you know, for not you know, going nuclear. Um, all of these things seem to me to make 2010 really a good cutoff point. Um, to say that the story from 1870 to 2010 was that humanity ceased being the kind of poor society of largely peasants and craftsmen where governance is overwhelmingly the elite figuring out how to 
run its force and fraud domination and exploitation game over others and keep its own share. Um, instead, the possibility of building a two true utopia came into view because we doubled our collective wealth every generation. You know, by 2010, though, it was clear that simply doubling our wealth every generation was not enough. And then we had to face the problems of the 21st century, which were in some ways bigger than that of simply we have we are getting the wealth. We have to figure out how to distribute and utilize. You're one click away from getting access to all the hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. I should just say in parentheses, one of my favorite lines in the book is, quote, the history of the long 20th century cannot be told as a triumphal gallop or a march or even a walk of progress along the road that brings us closer to utopia. It is rather a slouch at best, unquote. And it seems to me that comprehensive answer in a way helps to elaborate on that central insight in the book. And do note, do note that that thought is not original. Right. It was stolen from William Butler Yeats, right? his poem, The Second Coming, which is his reaction to, you know, having grown up in a relatively peaceful Ireland, getting richer and richer. Um, and then, boom, um, along comes the British Tory party's decision that it's going to partner with terrorists in Northern Ireland to prevent Irish self-rule. Boom, along comes World War I, you know, the Easter Rebellion, and then the post-World War I semi-settlement. When it truly looks as if, you know, um, you know the center cannot hold, um, the falcon cannot hear the falconer, and that there is some rough beast slouching towards Bethlehem to be born rather than a messiah who will lead us into a, into a prosperous and happy new Jerusalem. You know, steal from the best always, and I've stolen from Yates here, and I am proud of it. <laughs> you, you set up the book in the way as a dialogue between two Vienna-born thinkers, free market economist Frederick Hayek and the moral philosopher Karl Polanyi, who incidentally spent his later years in Canada. He did, that Karl Polanyi's wife had been... Um, one of the first Leninists had been one of Lenin's followers when Lenin had only five followers in Zurich in 1916. And so the FBI and the CIA were extremely, extremely averse to having Ilona in the country for long, which is why Karl Polanyi eventually left the you know, Bennington College in Vermont and Columbia University in New York for Canada. Exactly. And as I understand it, he, ended, he lived out his life in Pickering, Ontario, of all places. My question for you is, what's the significance of these two intellectuals to your story? How do they represent competing conceptions of how to think about political economy? Well, you know, we are right there now, eight billion of us. Um, we have to figure out how to cooperate somehow. Um, you know, a 
command and control kind of military top-down organization. You know, well, um, you know, you've worked for kind of command and control organizations with a boss who tells people what they have to do or what they should be doing. And by the time the span of control gets, you know, not very large, the boss is pretty much clueless as to an awful lot of what is happening in the organization. And a lot of the organization's time is spent um, evading either the instructions of the boss and doing something else that would be a better thing to do, and then trying to get the boss not to realize exactly how little of the actual running of the organization he is doing. That having a single mind at the top and turning everyone else into robots doesn't work. So the next stage was, you know, to write a rule book, um, to write, to have a bureaucracy and have someone write down what we're going to do in every situation. But, you know, you've worked for bureaucracies and the rule book covers only a third of cases. And even in the cases it covers, the rule book is often not the right thing to do. And so there is all of this kind of papering over what is being done. There's also the possibility of organizing things in a market, right? Give people control over resources. You know, make them um, their property and say, you decide what to do with this. And then also um, provide people with incentives. Right? You use this resource productively and you will get a form of social power to accomplish your other purposes. We call it money, but it really is social power. It's the power to command the attention of people and to get things you might need for your other purposes. And provided you can rig the marketplace and rig prices so that prices are in accord with social values, all of a sudden, when you have a market, you have managed to crowdsource the solution to every possible social problem that the market can handle. Right. Um, we need to move away from carbon energy and use more solar power. Give people a way to make money by installing and then running solar panels. Um, we need people in Toronto to have eggs. Um, have people in Toronto buy eggs and thus give whoever gets the eggs to Toronto money that they can then distribute to induce other people to raise, have chickens and then ship the eggs to Toronto. Um, that the properly structured market under the right conditions is a way of turning us from a command and control organization in which there is one person who says what we should do and everyone else obeys in a complicated ant-like fashion that's not very useful. Um, or alternatively, a rule-bound bureaucracy in which we are all software bots that respond automatically to situations, which once again doesn't, that, you know, that harnessing all 8 billion of our brains towards solving social problems can be wonderfully, wonderfully productive in terms of creating copper cooperation and wealth, you know, provided prices are in accord with social values. And that's the first problem. Um, the second problem is, as you know, Friedrich von Hayek, who sang this song of the excellences of the market as a crowdsourcing device and thus a superior form of socialization, the loudest, um, as Hayek said, the market can make us rich. It cannot be fair. Right? That fairness means you give resources to people who deserve them in some sense or who would benefit from them in some sense. 
But, you know, the market gives wealth, gives social power to those who happen to control resources that are both scarce and valuable. Um, so we can ask the market to make us rich, said Hayek. We cannot ask the market for social justice. It can't do that. And if we try to make it do that, Hayek said, well, then we destroy its ability to do what it can do, um, make us poor and put us on the road to serfdom where we have neither wealth nor um, social justice. You know, the opposite pole to Friedrich von Hayek is Karl Polanyi, who says, well, yes, markets nice, markets very productive, but markets tremendously inhuman. Um, that a market economy, in a market economy, the only rights that have that are recognized are property rights. And if you don't have property rights, you have no social power at all. The, the market literally does not see you if you cannot waive cash um, and offer to buy some. But Polanyi said people will not stand for a society um, in which the only rights that count are property rights. That people think they have property, have a right to an income commensurate with how hard they work and what they deserve. Um, people think that they have a right to stability, that their life not be totally overturned simply becomes some rootless cosmopolite financier 3,000 miles away decides that their life no longer satisfies a maximum profitability test. Uh, people feel like they have a right that the community they grew up in and they live in not change or not change too fast, you know, that it not be bulldozed um, once again, because the market decides that this particular industry and productive apparatus has actually better moved to Shenzhen and ought to have moved last year. Um, and people demand that think they have a right that things be fair, which means not only that equals be treated equally, but also that moochers who are unequal to you not be able to get away with stuff. And, you know, these four forms of resistance to you know, the market's recognition of only property rights will, um, says Polanyi, mean that if you try to follow Hayek, what Hayek says we must do, and try to make everything run by the market, you're going to have social explosion after social explosion. You know, that you simply cannot organize a society around the principle that the market giveth, the market taketh away, blessed be the name of the market. Um, instead, you have to have figure out some way to make, to get society to understand, you know, that the market was made for man, um, not man for the market. And most of at least political economy and much, much of governance and much of governance gone wrong in the 20th century is the tension between these two poles, you know, between the um, markets attempting to create productivity at the price of demolishing anything you can call society, and then society trying to defend its particular conceptions of justices, which may not be very just, um, and to squelch the market in return. Let me ask about one particular political economy model and how it fits into your broader story. China's political economy model is a subject that we frequently discuss on this podcast. How does its model of economic development fit in this tension between the relative role of markets and the state in engineering economic progress during the long 20th century? Has China, in a way, learned the same lessons that you're trying to impart about political economy 
Or is its model flawed in other ways? Maybe to put it concretely, what, if anything, should Western policymakers learn from China's experience over the past 40 or 50 years? I mean, it is absolutely fascinating that they start out with from virtually ground zero in 1976, you know, after the Cultural Revolution, um, after this Soviet-like, you know, command and control, we build big factories, we reinsert the peasantry on the communes, we kind of attempt to inform, to create ideological conformity. You know, it's a disaster. It's as much a disaster as it was in the Soviet Union. It kind of robs the country of 80% of its potential wealth. You know, and then starting in 1976, you know, Deng Xiaoping, who had been one of the principal architects of the Stalinist economy previously, back before he'd been purged during the Cultural Revolution, says we have to try something else. Um, you know, we can't be capitalists, you know, but we can create a situation in which local villages and townships, you know, have an interest in letting people start and run businesses. Um, and then have a kind of, you know, um, extremely close relationship between the growing private sector in China and the local party officials whose protection is needed for the local private sector to run. Um, not the same kinds of protection that your property is yours and the king's judges will protect it against others that he had in Britain, but that while your property is not yours, the party bosses will kind of clear the way for you to use things as if they were yours, as long as you are useful and as long as you are producing enough tax revenue for the local township or village budget and provided you find enough jobs for the nephews of party bosses um, who need jobs badly and haven't done too well right out on their own. And so from 1976 to 2010, you have um, step by step, you have the Chinese government stepping away from the plan, right? Um, creating more and more and more of a modern market economy, although with the property rights of entrepreneurs and businessmen, always these strange kind of property rights that depend on your having the right connections with the right people in the government at the right time, you know, or it all can vanish suddenly and instantly um, as it has for many Chinese tech billionaires and others over the past 10 years or so, you know, and the, and it's, you know, absolutely marvelous, you know, it's absolutely wonderful what's happened um, that they've been able to do this. Um, now it's not as, great a miracle as one might as one often has said that you know um that coastal china its rate of growth as after 1976 is very much like japan's rate of growth after 1950 or south korea's rate of growth after 1960 or singapore and taiwan's after 1960 and hong kong's after 1960 um or vietnam's which starts a decade later than china um you know, Thailand and Indonesia are up there, too, that coastal China has been growing like an East Asian economy in the age of globalization, um, with an integration into world trade, a Confucian, very much pro-educational tradition, and a willingness on the part of the developed North to accept the exports of East Asia. Um, first, because we wanted to show 
the communist Chinese that capitalism was much more productive. And then because we thought if we got China into the world economy and helped it grow rich, it would become more democratic. So right now, right, we have maybe, what, 150 million people in China who kind of live like Spain. Um, and maybe another 300 um, million, maybe four, maybe 400 million who live kind of like Poland. And then 900 million in the interior where it's still a lot like Bolivia. Or rather, it would be a lot like Bolivia if you had a nephew who had moved to Spain and was sending home a bunch of money. Um, from Spain to help you live better than people live in Bolivia. It's it's the second largest economy in the world. It's a great technological powerhouse in a bunch of industries, but you know it's not not um, not yet a made the transition to a relatively wealthy country. And of course now, right? Xi Jinping has kind of taken what we thought was its trajectory under Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, and Hu Jintao and transformed it, saying we are not, in fact, becoming more like you know, Western Europe and North America. We are following our own path. That if, say, um, social democrats wanted uh, the economy to... Um, you know, be a combination of Friedrich von Hayek's, you know, market with Karl Polanyi's concern for society and for the non-property rights expectations that people have as to how a good society should run. Um, all of it blessed by John Maynard Keynes's beliefs that if you are clever enough with managing the economy by having the government pull the right levers, you can maintain full employment and keep income distribution um, relatively equal. China is saying, no, that's not what we're doing. Um, we are having Friedrich von Hayek's market, yes, but it is controlled and commanded by a Leninist party. You know, not a shotgun marriage of von Hayek to Polanyi, but a shotgun marriage of von Hayek to Lenin. And the priest, instead of being John Maynard Keynes, you know, the priest is Confucius, the priest is Master Kung. And the kind of bureaucratic idea, the bureaucratic ideas of good governance and kind of right action and orientation, whether as a ruler over others or being filial PLPS to your ancestors um, and to your relatives. Will it work? Um, I can't imagine how. But then I also have been unable to imagine how China could work for 40 years now. Right. At every point, I've said this thing is going to crash in the next decade. And so far, I've been wrong for at least 35 of those years. You mentioned globalization in your answer, and it, it's something that is present throughout the book. I want to take that up. And in particular, how contemporary globalization was communicated to ordinary citizens in advanced economies. The basic premise was that it was a positive sum development in which the likelihood of concentrated losers was mostly de-emphasized. In hindsight, had policymakers and opinion leaders instead framed it something like the following, that globalization would reduce global inequality, but contribute to higher levels of domestic inequality, I wonder if the public opposition would have been earlier and stronger. Let me ask you this. Was it inevitable that hyper-globalization, as you called in the book, would contribute to rising inequality in the U.S., Canada, and elsewhere? Or could it have been pursued in a way 
that produce some of the global upsides without some of the domestic downsides? Well, it was our choice right, here in the United States as a country um, to cut back on the inheritance tax on capital gains taxes and on high income taxes. You know, it wasn't the opening up of the global market. Uh, that greatly leveled our tax system from the progressive social democratic one after World War II to the one where right now, as Warren Buffett says, his secretary pays a higher tax rate you know, than he does. Um, and where I, where my income is mostly you know, standard W-2 wage and salary income, pay a much higher tax rate than does my hedge fund principal manager brother. Um, that was our choice you know, to do that. And, you know, it was our choice in the 1980s to or Ronald Reagan to say, we're going to spend a bunch more money on the Cold War and we're going to cut taxes um, for the rich as a result. And yes, I promised to balance the budget, but that's out the window. So we're going to borrow a lot of money from abroad. You know, and by borrowing a lot of money from abroad, we have to offer them higher interest rates. Higher interest rates mean a higher value of the dollar. You know, it was Ronald Reagan who sent Midwest American Midwestern manufacturing the first shutdown now signal by saying virtually everything you make is made can be made cheaper elsewhere, precisely because the value of the dollar is so high. And so I'd say it's been overwhelmingly for the United States. You know, globalization has been ill managed, but you know, globalization has not been the principal source of rising inequality. It has been starving um, education of investment, and it has been moving the tax system away from progressive to a flat, to a much more flatter system that has done it. But, you know, globalization is a very easy thing to blame, right? You're more likely to win an election if you blame foreign followers or foreigners for whatever is going wrong than if you take you know, big aim at any particular class of domestic people, about one third of whom are likely to vote for you if you kind of leave them alone. So I would say that most of the downsides of globalization for the global north um, have been the result of um, failures that were domestically made, um, overwhelmingly domestically made. And that to say that globalization did this to us, you know, well, no, globalization provided a way to excuse your own failures. Let me ask you a penultimate question. The book ends with a description of contemporary political economy and with the quotation, quote, a new story which needs a new grand narrative that we do not yet know has begun. In light of that context, I'd be remiss, Brad, if I didn't ask you what you think Canadian policymakers ought to be doing to not only bolster growth in Canada, um, but to create the kind of economic resilience that the country will need in an era of geopolitical uncertainty. Can I say something that Christia Freeland reacted badly to when I said it to her 20 years ago, back when she was a journalist, long before she came again a politician? Yes, please. Allow the United States to annex um, you, right? Turn British Columbia into six states. Change the median voter in America from some guy in a pickup truck with a gun rack outside of, you know, um, Nashville to a nurse practitioner in Toronto. You know, it's very much in some ways, you know, the Brexit problem that 
fact, you know, I understand why no sane and rational Canadian would want to be part of the United States of America, given its extraordinary weirdnesses of all kinds. But an awful lot of what influences and determines what happens in Canada, you know, is settled in Washington. And, you know, um, and this indeed is something that I did tell Christia Freeland, right? That is that Canada needs to have someone minister level or maybe two people minister level who are actually in Washington all the time acting like American senators act. You know, um, saying this concerns us and we're here and we're affected by it, too. And we know that, you know, you don't think about us much, but we're here on this continent with you. We're in a very tight and productive relationship. You, know, you need to listen to us and at least take care of what matters to us. You know, in the same way that I think Brexit is being going to be a total disaster for the island of Britain, precisely because Europe is now going to make Europe's policies without any regard for Britain whatsoever. Um, and that's going to hurt um, in a bunch of ways. Um, so, you know, that Mexico and Canada have very long faced this problem of what do you do on the North American continent? Um when I don't know what you want to call it, you know, um, a paranoid and delusional elephant, you know, hopped up on, right, um, hopped up on you know, some kind of strange, strange mind-altering tranquilizers sometimes or not, um, you know. Um, and so that's the first and most obvious thing. Um, and then the natural second stage, if you're not going to allow yourself to be annexed by the United States and thus change the median voter determining who actually holds power in Washington into some sensible Canadian who properly um, roots for les habitants, unnecessary, uh, um, strengthening the you know, global political globalization, right, that you know, requiring that the global North countries move together on economics, on social policy, on military and security policy is kind of Canada's best friend and best option. You know, that small countries should be the most pro-process, you know, pro-international organizations, pro-near consensus required for motions of anyone. And actually, I think Canada has done an amazingly good job, you know, of playing its hand um, over the course of the past 100, 150 years or so. But, you know, it's it's a rather, you know, um, nerve wracking hand to have to play. Let's wrap up with a question looking forward. If the end of your book is indeed right and the long 20th century is over, what's your sense of what comes next? What's the future state of political economy going to look like? Well, if we're smart, um, we will succeed in fight and scotching global warming very, very quickly and have an economy that's reoriented toward non-carbon energy globally within 20 years and then have a strong sense that the world is right, that the world has the power to do things together you know, coming out of that. You know, the next is that we are moving from a global value chains mode of production, set of forces of production, 
and we conspicuously did not rewrite the kind of relations of production, political, economic, you know, social, cultural, running software code of society on top of that hardware to produce a very good outcome over the past generation. Now we have to rewrite our society's, our global society's software again in order to fit with the requirements and the requisites of the info biotech economy that we're rapidly moving into. So we need to do that. How do we do that? I have not the slightest idea, but I think all 8 billion of us should be thinking about how to do that starting now or rather starting 10 years ago. Well, one way to think about the future is to return to the past. And in that sense, I strongly recommend to listeners the book Slouching Towards Utopia, An Economic History of the 20th Century. Jay Bradford DeLong, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you very, very much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.